Hey, this is Nick Walters with the National Hemp Growers Cooperative, and I am pleased to be back in the saddle again as we have uh, restarted our webinar Wednesdays. And we're particularly excited because we have uh, decided to move <clears throat> uh, the audio portion of our, our webinars into a podcast. So if you are listening to today's episode that we have with our our friend Greg Nicko with uh, IND Hemp, then you are hearing the planned ahead of time first uh, webinar Wednesday that will be a podcast. How about that for a bigger one? You can't hashtag that, can you, Greg? That's way too long. Be no, I think that's too many hashtags. What is it? Hashtag first webinar Wednesday made into a podcast? <laughs> yes. And you would be the only one that looked at it because that would be the way that that would work. But we're, we're pleased to have him. I can't think of uh, um, a better guy to have on with us right now than you, Greg. Greg and I have had the opportunity to interact in several ways, um, including visits that uh, I made uh, to his home state of Washington and there to Fort Benton, uh, where IMD Hemp is and at NOCO. And, and, and the thing that we appreciate the most, uh, Greg, was when we kicked off our first Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi Hemp Conference back in uh, December, you were one of our early on, first on guests that morning. Uh, it was an audio-visual total meltdown, but it all the, the, the content came through, which was great. And we had you on first thing in the morning because we wanted to hear all the things that you knew to tell us, but we weren't paying too much attention to the fact that you were two hours behind us. So you, I don't know if you never went to bed or if you just got up extra early that day, but you stepped up to the plate and we appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I always enjoy uh, when we can get together. And as you know, Nick, what I do is I talk about him and uh, we're a couple of years into this and it's great when we can educate people on some of our experiences and some of the realities out there, not just the hope. So I'm always here for you, even if it's at 4.30 uh, in the morning. <laughs> well, look, tell me and tell us, um, tell us kind of uh, your hemp aha, aha moment. When was it a time that you really said, man, this stuff is really cool and I want to start uh, working in the industry? And, and what's what's your backstory on your hemp aha moment? Well, it's, it's somewhat two-pronged. So I'll give you the way back to begin with. Uh, sometime in the early 90s, uh, you know, probably 90, 91 or so, I came across the book, uh, The Emperor Wears No Clothes by Jack Herer, which, you know, was kind of the activist Bible uh, for the last 30 years of trying to communicate that this plant had all these benefits, right? And if any of your listeners are not familiar with The Emperor Wears No Clothes, Google it. Uh, you can actually read it online for free these days. It truly is what paved the path for the modern hemp industry. But that was you know, 30 years ago. And that's just something I've held as a core belief uh, since then is that it's really a slight against mankind to take this plant away from the people. And really outside of the short prohibition, short 80 plus year prohibition in the United States, for thousands of years back into history, this was the most used plant. So, you know, I've always had a bit of a chip on my shoulder about, you know, the government confused this with marijuana and took it away from the people. And, you know, obviously you read the book, you'll learn about the different interests and plastics and other industries that have a reason to support it. But our world could be in a different place today if we hadn't taken this away. So fast forward, you know, years later, 2017, 
uh, I found myself, I was uh, working in the action sports industry. I was a global director of sales and uh, I was in 23 countries that year in 2017 and found that I uh, had a back problem, had a couple of herniated discs, didn't walk for about eight weeks and was not really into getting the surgery. And the only thing that really helped was hanging upside down from a gravity table. And so I spent, you know, a quarter of every hour hanging upside down. You get a lot of time to think about your life when you're hanging upside down and you can't walk and the blood's rushing to your head. And, you know, I'm only in my mid forties, so I'm not at the point where I'm ready to give up walking and mobility. And, you know, my wife brought it up and said, you know, maybe the stress of your job is contributing to this and maybe you should think about doing something different. And so, you know, I hung upside down, thought about that for a couple of days and thought maybe I could walk away from my career after 25 years and do something different. And then the conversation shifted to, well, what would you do? And I just happened to read something that came across, you know, my desk at that time and realized that in 2017, Washington had planted the first industrial hemp crop. And I hadn't really been following it since the 2014 farm bill. You know, I was focused on my world, you know, selling toys around the world, you know, and uh, I had, so really the aha moment was, oh my God, this is happening here right now and it's still early. And that was what, you know, kind of aspired it. And I started getting involved, went and met with the growers that grew that first crop. It was a grain crop. At the time, I knew much more about fiber and cannabinoids than I knew about grain. And uh, I came home that evening and said to my wife, do you have any idea how healthy this stuff is? The, the hemp hearts, you know, right here, the hemp hearts, the inside piece of the hemp seed. And she walked over to the cupboard and grabbed a bag and came out and said, do you have any idea? I've been feeding you this for 10 years. And that was kind of the synergy of my desire to shift my work of, you know, brand development and product development into the hemp space and her commitment to the nutritional side of hemp and really the superior nutritional benefits of hemp food. And she was coming out of uh, about a dozen years working in cancer survivorship. So she had a great context of how the modern diet and the modern food system is contributing to more people ending up with cancers and also how changing those diets helps bring them out. And the hemp seed keeps coming up over and over again, both from the hemp seed oil as a supplement uh, opportunity, as well as all of the nutritional benefits. And so all of a sudden we had this synergy and together decided that, hey, let's jump in full speed and uh, get into the hemp food business. Mind you, neither of us had any uh, personal experience in the food business. Um, so we, uh, we jumped in and, uh, in 2018, uh, well, 2017, we had our first license with the state of Oregon. We live right on the Oregon Washington border, uh, right as we got going in November, the Washington program ran out of money and basically stalled the program. And we were fortunate that we literally live right on the river and went across to Oregon and they said, come on over. How can we help you be successful? And, uh, started working on our first facility at that point. So. That's something. Well, I mean, everybody's got some personal aha story, but you at least had some reference, well, more than just reference by reading The Emperor Has No Clothes. I mean, with that, you know, I just read it quite frequently on the on the plane to, to NOCO this year. Because oh, well, I'd, I'd, never, I'd never read it before. But I will tell you that, that whether you believe all of it or not, Okay, I mean, it's it is a very compelling story, and it certainly gives you a history and allows you to get a framework of. When I first got into it, I, I kept thinking, 
no, there's no way this plant will do all of that. I mean, that's, uh, come on now, that's a little much. And by golly, absolutely it does, right? And it, it does all these cool things. So that's really, that's a great story. It's great to know that that's how all that fit. So uh, let's talk about IND Hemp and let's talk about what you guys have going on out there in Fort Benton. Um, I was pleased to be out there just a couple of weeks ago to get part of the grand tour of uh, uh, the latest uh, iteration of all of um, processing equipment that's going on out there. So I'd love to know about that and make sure that everybody kind of understands what that is. We went out to some wheat, uh, some wheat clusters in the hemp fields, uh, surrounded by wheat in, in a lot of cases, and, and uh, got to see uh, the different varieties that were there and, and the visit have been. Uh, Brimlow, your agronomist, lead us through some of the, um, showing us some of the different varieties and what it means to be in a field that is irrigated and one that is not and what that all looks like. So uh, it was a great trip together <laughs> and we really were, were pleased to be invited and to be a part of, of some of the think tankers there, particularly along the, the fiber and grain side. So tell us, why don't you just start off with what you've got right there in front of you and all these cool canisters and then tell us about the processing facility as well. Yeah, maybe I'll just start giving a little context for those that aren't aware of IND Hemp and hopefully Please. most of your members are aware of IND Hemp and if they're not, I'm probably not doing my job because part of my job is to help get our word out there. Um, right. Most importantly, IND Hemp is a family-owned company, multi-generational family-owned company uh, that's mission-driven and really focused on developing an infrastructure so that Farmers in Montana have a new opportunity. And that's where it starts for IND Hemp. And, you know, obviously we're involved in a lot of things and I'll show this and explain down the road, but really the genesis of what starts with IND Hemp is, you know, and Ken has said it himself, Ken Elliott, our founder, and uh, you can actually see, I'll give a little plug at the front and the back. Uh, we did just start doing a YouTube channel where we're trying to just show what we're doing here in Montana. And so there is an episode where we introduce Ken and Julie and the family and you know, Ken, I'll say it there, you know, they had an opportunity as an family to make some investment and they really wanted to see how they could make the biggest positive impact in farm country in Montana and across the West. And hemp was coming up and there had been some mistreatments of some farmers in Montana. There was actually just a news story last week that there was second largest civil judgment in Montana history where the CBD guys that got led astray in 2018 we're just a $65 million for fraudulent contracts and uh, bad actors. Um, so there's a bit of a black eye on it. But at the same time, in Montana, most of these guys are dry land wheat and cereal farmers. You know, wheat, barley, uh, some pulses, dry peas, a little bit of garbanzo beans. But really, that's it. You know, it's a dry area and there's not a whole lot of opportunities. And the guys that have these big multi rate wheat farms, they're struggling just to survive every year. You know, we push the commodity prices so low and the expectations of the growers so high that, you know, most of these guys are slaving all day to make a few dollars an acre. And so in Montana, it's not just about hemp and how excited we all are on hemp. And I will say, and as you'll hear, we're, and you saw, Nick, we're all in on hemp. We're, we're well, well, well all in. And, uh, but the, the genesis and what drives us is, you know, are we making an impact 
for our farmers and are we making an impact in rural America? And so even when I came on, one of the first things Ken told me, he said, you know, we need to be paying attention to our forecast and our budget. You know, we need to be a profitable company. He said, but the way I'm going to measure if we were successful this year is can we offer more contracts to more growers next year? And so it's really important and I lead with it because it is what drives us. You know, we do have a mission to create opportunities for farmers with industrial hemp by creating the relationships with those that are the innovators that use the material. So to move on to that, to what we do, uh, we call ourselves a first touch processor. And we've expanding that into fiber processing as well as our grain processing, but we're the company that works with the genetics. Obviously you met Ben, our agronomist. We are invested in our agronomy team that supports our growers. So we're the seed all the way through production, contracting with family farms around Montana, as well as in uh, Oregon, Washington. We're excited that finally we'll be able to help support some growers in Idaho next year is the last state that is sandwiched in the middle, but finally came on. And, you know, Idaho growers on the Washington border have the same land that the Washington guys have on the Palouse there. Um, so there's some opportunities and some tribes that, that want to get some opportunities. And so we essentially on the grain, we take that from contracts through receiving the raw agricultural good, in this case being the grain. And uh, into my little display here, that's hemp seed grain right there. Uh, mm -hmm. Listeners are wondering what's the difference between hemp seed and hemp grain. Really, yes. it's a lexicon that came out of the Canadian industry when they had restrictions on seed because of THC concerns. So essentially, even though it is the same thing, in the hemp space, we plant seeds, but we harvest grain. So if the product is meant to be the harvested product for consumption, whether that's human consumption, animal consumption, or even into industrial products, the harvested material is called grain so that that separates if you're in a conversation with somebody about seed. And really the difference in there, if you're wondering why would we separate it, you know, most of the grain production and moving into fiber production is certified seed. And that's a seed where the genetics and the way they're raised and replicated are defined to a specific and they're regulated by uh, a body. In this case, AOSCA is the body that regulates seed. And really what certified seed does in hemp, and again, this is adopted from the Canadian grain industry, is that it lets the farmer know that they don't need to worry about THC. And oddly enough, for American listeners, the even concept, but the varieties that we grow for grain here that are Canadian varieties actually are exempt in Canada. And so their process, and this is what we'd love everybody to petition our government and evolve to as industrial hemp separates from cannabinoid hemp, is once a variety has been proven over multiple generations in a certain area to not go hot, in Canada it's three years after application, that by province, they can say, oh, like X59 that we grow here has been exempt in Canada for more than five years. So if you're a farmer and you're growing an X59 crop under contract and you're purchasing a certified seed, there is no state THE testing because the market has proved that out for the state. And so that's what you get with certified seed. You know, here, when we brought seed here, again, after all these guys got burned in the early years, you know, you saw how big things are out here. Nick, you know, a small farm out here might do 200 acres of hemp. And that 200 acres of hemp is still less than 5% of the 10 or 15,000 acres that he's farming in other crops. So it's not a big risk, but you're not going to ask a farmer to put 200 acres in of something if there's a question mark at all about whether he's going to test hot. 
And really, as we move forward as an industry, we need to take that off of the farmer's shoulders and put that on the industry and how we work at the state. And we're fortunate that in the state of Montana, our Department of Agriculture actually recognizes that. And prior to the USDA getting involved with hemp, Montana's hemp plan, even from the first farm bill, has had a seed grading program. So in the state of Montana, they have A, B, C, and D. A B seed, B class seed, is a certified seed that's proven somewhere else, such as the Canadian grain varieties that we grow. And with that B seed, they will only test a percentage of the fields if it's planted in that. A C seed would be something that you don't know what it is. Basically 100% of all the cannabinoid strains out there, varieties that are unproven, that would be a C, they would test 100% of the fields. A D class is something that's already gone hot a couple times and the state says you can't grow that seed here. So D is a restricted class. Now what's A class? A class is the state realizing that you have this B class certified seed variety and now you've grown it multiple years across Montana and we've proven that the results in Montana match what the certified providers have and they test even fewer of the fields. So really- it evolve into the A. You, you kind of, B is where you might want to start, but you get to evolve to A because you have tenure and time and you've proven it out and there's no reason for us to go back there and have to check that again because we've already done it. It's yeah. just not easy to go. It's not like you're in Vermont where you can go drive across the state one afternoon and go right. check a bunch of fields and come back home. Right. If they're sending somebody from the Department of Ag in Helena and they want to go check our growers in the Wolf Point uh, Fort Peck area, which is the northeast part of the state, you know, that's a six or seven hour drive one way. And, you know, a lot of these state programs have you covering the miles for the state official that needs to go out to test your field. So the, the benefit and the reason why I brought it up and wanted to share it with the larger group, because we have the ability to get everybody on the same page. Montana's plan was the plan of, of essentially model that if everybody remembers and some of these guys, some of your members might not even remember all the fights that we've been in over the years. But for those that have had to work on legislation and activism, uh, when the FDA went to uh, put in the final rule from the interim final rule, they opened up one final comment period late last year after harvest. So they had some measure of what people actually saw in the field. And we had a coordinated uh, campaign essentially with our Department of Agriculture, with the state attorney of Montana, as well as supporting our growers to have the same language. And we flooded USDA with the same language saying, you guys need to look at grain and fiber differently than cannabinoids. And while many people would read that final rule and not see a big change, there's a little bit of language in there, which is the Montana, you know, nod to Montana, which says, if a state has a proven program for risk management, that state can determine their own testing somehow differently than USDA. Essentially saying that they're, they left open a doorway for a state to take accountability if they develop a program for risk management to not have to test 100% of the fields. And that was specifically because Montana was behind it. And I think in the coming years when the, you know, when the dust settles a little bit and the smoke clears of, of all the cannabinoids and hopefully Del Date clarifies everything, honestly, they just legalize all of cannabis and quit putting it on different sides of the line, regulate everything appropriately. Um, I think we'll start to get buy-in, you know, at a bigger legislative level that really if a farmer is working with a processor, which or a co-op, 
which is how farmers should be working. They shouldn't just be going on their own. And that group, whether it's a processor or a co-op, is sourcing a known seed for a known end result purpose. Then we shouldn't put all the weight of testing and THC on that farmer. You know, last year we grew around 10,000 acres in Montana of X59. That's 10 semi-truck loads of about 40,000 pounds of seed. All 10 semi-truck loads of seed that got planted all around Montana came from the same breeder in Canada. So that's the argument is that let us prove to the state that it is what it is and take that away from the farmer that once they purchased it from us and there's a paper trail on that contract, don't even bother that guy. Make it on us to prove. So anyhow, I get down a little bit of a rabbit hole that happens in everything in hemp. Uh, sorry to, to mislead. In coming years, anybody that's looking to be involved in grain and fiber specifically in hemp, let's get a common voice together and educate our, our local state and national representatives that this is different than a cannabinoid plant and there's ways to mitigate risk. And, you know, I'll transition that, you know, we'll talk about growing and then get back into processing. When we move into fiber, some of the best fiber varieties out there that we have access to are coming out of China and they'll go about 1% THC. You know, the, the aversion of THC is a political thing. It's not a scientific thing. And some of the, the highest quality textile uh, hemp fiber in the world comes out of some of the hotter plants on the industrial side. And we're talking on the industrial side of like maybe it goes to 1.5, okay? Mind you, in a state like Oregon or Washington where I live and Montana's got a program now in Colorado and all these states that are legalizing, you would never see for sale anything below 15 or 18%. It wouldn't even be considered sellable in a THC market. So this gap that we have, and you know, we're talking, we're hemp people, right? We have no THC in our plants, except it might get up to 1%. Well, that 1% is completely irrelevant when the bottom of the market starts at 15 and goes to about 30%. So, you know, it, it actually helped our conversation in Montana this year because the people passed uh, with a ballot initiative uh, legalization for adult use in Montana. And, you know, we did have a field of hemp fiber that went about 1% last year. And, you know, we're talking about different destruction methods with the state of which Montana is a big supporter of realizing that decortication is a pretty good destruction method uh, because there's definitely no THC in it by the term we turn it into hempcrete and uh, bass fiber. So we've got that pathway. Um, into that. And I lost my train of thought. I apologize. Probably a good time for you. No, 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 no. So tell us about, let's talk about decortication. Since you threw out that big word that I had to learn how to spell and say uh, after I got into, uh, uh, into the, the hip world. Tell us about the processing uh, uh, facility and what you guys have got rolled out and what's coming uh, for that. And then let's talk more about, about the, uh, uh, the grain and uh, some of the nutrition stuff that you've got in front of you too. Perfect. So for those that <clears throat> decortication is a new term, we'll start at the beginning with a definition. Decortication simply is the word that describes the process of separating the, you've got a little example here of a stock, the yeah. inner wood core from the bass fiber. So this right here, you see there's bass fiber and I'm going to peel. I just decorticated that. That is the verb that describes the process. The machine or the line, you know, on a small scale, you know, there's great equipment out there by companies like Formation Ag that are good for a small scale decortication. 
that machine is separating the bast and the herd. And then you look at a line like ours, we're gonna start up here pretty soon. We have a five ton an hour La Roche line built in France. And La Roche is a company that has made decortication equipment for many years. Remember, prohibition was a political move, not a scientific move. There's other countries in the world that never stopped going forward. And decortication is also the same process you would do for flax or canaf or other bass fibers. So hemp is a, a class of what's called a bass fiber plant, where you have outer bass fiber around an inner woody core. Now, the complexity of decortication, and I'll bring it up again when we talk about hemp parts, you know, breaking this stuff and separating it isn't that hard. But what's hard is doing it at scale, doing it consistently. And the most difficult part of this whole process is how do you get that last 10% out? You know, the first 90% of separation is very easy. But, you know, if you look at, you know, once it's decorticated, you've got your herd there. Mm-hmm. It looks kind of like wood chips. If you want to use herd for animal bedding or hempcrete, you need to make sure that, that herd doesn't have any bass fiber left in it. So even after you separate it, there's a series of cleaning to make sure that your industry spec is around 3 to 5% acceptable either way, fiber and herd or herd and fiber. So the, the complexity of the whole setup, and here you can see some, this is raw bass fiber. Right. Is you don't want to have herd in the bass fiber. Uh, if we're going to help supply a company like Hempitecture to make their hemp wool insulation, it can't be full of wood chips, right? So when it goes into their process and you're turning it into a bad insulation. So the complexity of the line that you saw and to describe for your viewers, and again, I'll give a little plug. We show this all on our YouTube channel. Uh, we gave a tour recently to some legislators and uh, on our field day. So that's available. People can go to youtube.com backslash hemp and find all of that. So one thing that we're really proud of is that we're committed to and able to be transparent. That's why we saw we invited the whole industry uh, up to see what we're doing. And we truly believe that to move forward together, we need to share our experiences. And one thing that I'll tell you on behalf of Ken you know, we made a lot of mistakes along the way and some really expensive ones. And if we can help the next guy not have to go through that, that's gonna help build this industry. And really even more so on the fiber side than the grain side, but I would say they're both really collaborative. On the fiber side, if we're gonna build an industry here at all to the scale of the potential, you know, all those products we learned in the Emperor's New Clothes that you could make, you know, these, these large industries, we need to scale this across the entire country. And so the way we look at it is not everybody is a competitor, but as a way to, to build the industry. And this stuff needs to be regional. You know, you need to have processing within, you know, realistically about 100 miles of your supply. That stretches a little bit more in, in Montana because everybody hauls farther here anyways, you know, to get to an elevator. So that stretches a little bit. My guess is Texas probably can have a little bit of a wider range if they figure out which genetics they can grow down there. Um, but, you know, we're going to need something in the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic and across the heartland. You know, you've got South Bend Hemp has already got an operation in Kansas that's operational. You need these small operations to get going to get the farmers involved and start making this industry. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's part of our plug, right? I mean, that's part of what we are hoping that our role will be the more we learn about um, how we can partner with those end users of the product in the same method that you have, you know, like you were talking about hip protection, right? So, you know, 
to know what Maddie and his crew are doing and how they're doing it and to be able to purchase that since they're right next door to you in Idaho, that makes terrific sense. But let's just say somebody like him, he or some other group said, well, look, we really want to do something to supply people in the Northeast. Well, that's where we really want to be able to come in and, and see how we can bring our, our growers and capital and other needs and do joint ventures or just be a supplier or how we work all of that stuff. So um, uh, the models are a little bit different in between the processor like y'all are doing and versus the way that we're doing it, but it, we're still getting to the same spot and we all want each other to do well. And, and I think that's a, a, a huge thing that we all, I think kind of knew and we all kind of saw and we all kind of had that in the back of our head and we may have had it in our hearts, but when, when uh, y'all convened us out there a couple of weeks ago to, to have a, a um, this confab of, of, of an agreement of where we were headed uh, on the grain and fiber side. Not that we all agree on everything, right? It doesn't mean that we're all going to agree that the that the, the same path is the exact same perfect path, but we all agree that there is a path going forward. We all want to be on that together, pushing, not pulling, or pulling or pushing, if that's what we got to do. Yeah, on that there's there's hurdles you know we use the metaphor of a path there's moats and flaming pits and vipers and crocodiles and all these other things we need to cross and even if we're all running our own business and our own plan separately you know maybe we build a raft and cross the moat with alligators together and that gets everybody to the other side and really that's yeah. what we're thinking is you know we, we all continue to have a lot of issues we have regulatory issues we have consumer perception issues. You know, cannabinoids have really made that more complex than it was before they existed. You know, as example, just if your uh, members and listeners don't know what I'm jabbing at, but you know, before uh, CBD came on the market, hemp oil always referred to the oil of the hemp seed. And now all the hemp seed oil manufacturers, we have to call our product hemp seed oil because cannabinoids have confused the whole market that they believe that hemp oil is CBD. You know, there, there used to be a product, you know, the, the milled meal product, you know, the hemp seed meal that uh, gets milled after you press the cake. That was called flour, F-L-O-U-R, for many years. Well, when everybody started harvesting hemp flour, F-L-O-W-E-R, that confused the marketplace. And so now we all make powder because our powder. So, you know, there's there's complexities along the way. Yeah, yeah. And not just the one from the consumer. And they, we get into other things like animal feed and other regulations and all the way down to how are our states going to look at THC levels and fiber that's going to get bailed. You know what I mean? And our ability to have a common voice, especially when it comes to a lobbying effort or, you know, getting our legislators to move the needle. They need to hear the same thing from a bunch of people to realize, oh, wow, everybody's telling me to go over here. And this is why, you know. Right, right. And, and it's just a part of the immaturity of the industry that we just have to, you know, it's it's growing pains, but it's a good growing pain. That's what we're, we're, we're pleased to know at the time that we got into it, that a lot of this other stuff, a lot of the bad stuff had, had taken place. And while we're still trying to live with some of that, you know, those bad actors like the lawsuit and stuff that you, you, you referred to earlier, um, it gives us an opportunity to show our credibility. And and, and when we have um, groups like uh, IMB Help and others that understand, hey, look, we're all trying to get in the same spot. 
um, whether it's grain or fiber, we're excited about it. So anyway, let, 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 tell us more about the about the about the, the, the cortication facility. So it will it will turn on and turn and you're gonna be decorticating period and 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 uh, are you only getting fiber in from the folks that you have contracted with for grain? Are you are you looking for fiber from other places as well? Uh, definitely in the early years, definitely this year and in the next year, we're going to need to supplement what we do have. I mean, we're, we're fortunate that a number of growers growing for grain have been bailing their straw for a few years. So there is a supply. Um, and I will share with your uh, listeners as well that we're commissioning our plant with a dual purpose crop mentality. And the crop variety we grow, X59, actually has a really good architecture of the seed head that sits really high up on the stock. So you can come in and combine that seed head and come back in and uh, lay down and bale that straw. So part of that and why it's our model and why it's been tough for a lot of others is nobody knows the economics of fiber specific growing yet. And anybody that tells you they do, they probably don't, you know, and every variety performs in every region a little bit differently. And, you know, when you're penciling things out for fiber, contracts only, you know, there's, there's a price that the market will bear that it needs to be for incoming material to, you know, to have the outgoing material where it needs to be. And truly it comes down to the yield per acre for that grower. Once they bought their seed and planted it and fertilized it, you know, unless they have a water cost or, you know, they don't have other inputs. So at that point, it truly is how high does that plant get and how much weight of, you know, straw biomass is there. And we don't know that, you know, we're learning, you know, out here, we had a drought year, we had 10 foot high hemp on dry land here last year at this time. And you know, that same hemp is about four feet yesterday because it's just been burned by the sun and we haven't had any water. And so if you're penciling out a contract for somebody that shows them profitability above 6,000 pounds an acre and you get three, well, you just, you know, led them down a path that they lost money on. And so we're fortunate that we're not dependent on fiber only crops to commission our plant. We do have that dual crop. And really the mentality is, can we pay the farmer on their grain? And that's their first payment. And now can we build this other infrastructure and add value to what otherwise would be a waste product? And in many areas, you could leave that in the field. Um, you know, you could combine it low. You know, a lot of the Canadians will actually plant late, especially if they've got water, you know, irrigation they'll plant late in June to make sure they have shorter plants that are less developed so that they can chop it up through the combine easier and leave it in the field. You know, there's a lot of burning of hemp straw in Canada that nobody likes to talk about, not really the best way to question that carbon to burn it off. But the reality is, you know, it's the longest, strongest fiber on the planet, right? Natural fiber, we like to say, uh, somebody can validate that or not. But, you know, if you're trying to drill a winter wheat crop in behind your hemp crop, you can't be pulling that drill through a bunch of hemp rope, essentially is what it is. So our pathway into fiber processing was actually solving a problem that we had created for our growers. And in the first year, our growers learning how to deal with this straw came back to us and said, you all better figure out how to do something with this straw or we're gonna quit growing grain for you. So, you know, we got into the fiber market from the dual purpose, realizing that if we can add value to both pieces of the plant and give away for the farmer. You know, most people probably don't know, but to go out and drive around a tractor and cut these stocks and then drive around and bale them, 
you're looking at labor and an input cost for what would essentially be a waste material, right? And what we need to do and what we have the responsibility for our growers is we need to show them a, a profitable net margin above their cost of time and effort to just get it out of the field. And if we can do that, then it gives value to that time. And all of a sudden we have a supply that we can go and make all these great products that we know we can do with them. But it all goes back to if we don't help make it work for the farmer, it's not going to work. And so if we tell them you're going to get 6,000 pounds an acre, buy a bunch of this seed and plant it, and they got nothing. And we, you know, we had a couple of guys this year that did take a leap on some fiber and the drought really set it back. And that's going to be, you know, tough to learn. So, uh, yeah, so dual purpose, we bring the straw in, the decortication plant. Again, go look online on our uh, YouTube channel. You can actually see it. Nick got to walk through it. It's about 80 or 90 feet in a line of machines that at every stage, the herd is coming out with gravity and it's just going up through this and there's lots of different things that have teeth and cards and you know the material is being conveyed by air stretching it and combing it in all these different ways to allow that herd to fall out and separate it and then you know our end product out of the decortication facility uh, will be simply raw baled hemp fiber so we're essentially you know i use the example of a uh, like hemp texture hemp texture is building a plant in idaho to make uh, the batted insulation, the hemp wool insulation. So they would take our raw material in giant cotton bale, basically. It's a big, you know, 500 pound cotton baler, um, compress that material, and then that goes into another process. You know, there's a lot of opportunity uh, in things like disposable wipes and other things that we're making all with oil and, you know, rayon and uh, polyester that could be used natural fibers. That would be the same type. So in this type of industry, that's why we say we're the first touch processor. We take the raw agricultural material and we turn it into something else that somebody then could go use. But we don't really make finished products here outside of packaging it for animal bedding. So hemp herd, uh, those that aren't familiar, this is a very light jar. Hemp herd is very light. It's got great air to it. It's partially why uh, that hemp wood that they make in Kentucky absorbs so much resin and is so hard because of the interior structure of that herd. That's also why, you know, we're going to be on the nano scale and then batteries and other things in the future, because at a microscopic scale, the, the, the function of how that's built is very unique, similar to, to graphene only natural. Um, so the crux in hemp herd being so light is getting it out the door. So if you put this stuff in a super sack, you know, your standard four sided pallet wide tote, uh, you can only get two, three, four hundred pounds best into a super sack. And, you know, if you're putting 23 of those or 26 of those on a 53 foot dry van semi truck, you know, you're not coming close to weighing out before you cube out. So it's not an efficient product to move. So the only way to really move it is to compress it. And that's why the bagger, you saw the bagger, you saw a number of different models of equipment, a number of different ages. You know, obviously, we have some used equipment in there. And then you turn that corner and you're like, wow, look at that big, shiny bagging machine. And it's because the crux of the whole thing to get the material out of central Montana at an affordable rate, we need to compression bag it. And that's both the 33 pound bales that, you know, is common in uh, horse bedding or in uh, hempcrete. That bale is actually a standard size. It's actually 15 kg is where that comes from. I believe uh, it's a European model and all of the lime makers that create this lime binder for hempcrete have actually sized their lime bags around a one-to-one -one bag 
on that. So like the hemp okay. green, they said even when we got going, they're like, yeah, we're looking forward to getting hemp herd for you. Make sure you buy the right bagger and have the right size. Because when you're on a job site, mixing hempcrete, if you have the right bag size, nobody has to measure. It's just a bag of this, a bag of that, a bucket of water every time you do it. Um, so that's a 33 pound. And then we do have a line that can do uh, more of a small animal bedding line that you'd see like a pet line. Uh, so kind of about this size in both a, a two and a five pound. Uh, and once we're compressed at that, we can get about seven or 800 pounds on a pound. And now all of a sudden, you know, we're still cubing out before we weigh out, but now we're you know, 35, 36,000 pounds on a truck instead of 20 something. Really cool. A lot of great stuff happening out there, man. And um, uh, uh, you guys are at the tip of the spear. Sometimes that spear jabs you in the butt and sometimes you get to be on the other end of it, you know, but it happens because you're out there. And, and um, I know a lot of that goes to the vision and to the heart that Ken uh, has and that uh, Morgan has and how that permeates to the rest of your team and, and about why it's important to truly do that rising tide lifts all boats. And it's, it's a great time for us in the industry to move things to where we get to a tipping point that, that will continue to fall in the right direction. And I think we're right. I think we're right on cusp of it. And what IMD Hip is doing is a, is a, a, a huge part of that, I think. And we're glad to have you uh, come spend some time with us uh, uh, in our, our our second shot at getting this together. Right? We we were we tried it yesterday, and Greg and I were both in undisclosed locations that had not as great connectivity as we thought. But now we're here, and we can certainly uh, hear each other a lot better. And hopefully, our listeners can too. So, Greg, I mean, sign no, off, huh? I'll say the audio is better today, but uh, my background was definitely better yesterday. Your background was winning, was the winner. Uh, you were you were in almost Canada, and I was in a coffee shop in Scottsboro, Alabama. So it uh, uh, between the two of us, uh, somehow or another, all that uh, worldwide web didn't uh, worldwide work like we wished it would, but it, it all it all came together nonetheless. So. Uh, Greg, give us the final word on uh, uh, what else you would like us to know. Give us that YouTube channel again, and uh, give us the um, the IND Hemp um, um, website. Well, the website's easy. It's IND, and those are the letters. IND stands for industrial. If uh, people wonder what does IND stand for, that's the, the abbreviation for industrial. And when Ken Elliott started the company, and a quote I love to share with people is, you know, like, Ken, why, why'd you call it IND hemp? He's like, I want to make it real clear. Like, you got your CBD guys over there. You got your THC guys over there. You got your IND, your industrial guys. We're right here. And we really, you know, we respect all of the parts of the plant and our friends that are involved in cannabinoids on both sides of the aisle. But really, we wanted to establish ourselves as different. You know, we're big farming. We work with a lot of multi-generational growers that are on you know, 10 to 15,000 acre farms. And, you know, they're not really in touch with, you know, the other side of the cannabis plant and recreational, it's a conservative area. And so we want to make it real clear. This is what we're doing, guys. We're food and fiber. You know, we're all good. We're big farming, food and fiber. Uh, so that's indhemp.com, our YouTube channel, uh, where you can see me talking into the wind and trying to interview our guys. It's kind of low budget. That's why it's on YouTube. Uh, but that's uh, youtube.com slash IND hemp. 
Uh, we would really appreciate it if you wanted to subscribe for that because really what we want to do is be able to put good, transparent, and true content out there. And part of that is just showing people what we're doing. And, you know, obviously there's a marketing piece in there that would love to have our customers see what we're doing. But the other piece of that is, you know, I've been in this industry for a number of years. Before we bought one at IMD Hemp, I'd never seen what a decorticator looked like. So my guess is probably a lot of people out there that wish they could see behind the curtain and see what this stuff looks like. You know, you want to see inside our oil seed plant? Well, that episode is going to come up soon. I'm shooting that while we're out here. And, you know, as much as we can show, and now if you get to, you know, kind of final word, you know, in reinforcing IMD Hemp believes in the hemp industry. They believe in creating opportunities for farmers. And we believe that for that to be realized, it's gonna take a lot of us working across the country and make that realized in every region. So we are one of the largest processors. I mean, we grew about 10,000 acres last year and we're scaling up now into fiber specific as well. But we would like people to see us more as a resource and a potential supply partner and a great way to learn more so than this big group over here that you're competing with. You know, at the end of the day, especially on the fiber, products and you know even on the food products there's guys out there that are years ahead into the into the marketplace and you know some of that can we help contract some of that this year especially uh if your guys are into farming which i would hope and assume most of them are and i don't really know what your commodities are down there nick i apologize the the south down there is out of my my knowledge but you know your heartland and midwest growers corn and soy had huge gains at the end of last year so if you live in those areas, you can make easy money on corn and soy. You weren't really thinking about a hemp contract this year. That's right. Two years ago in North Dakota, hemp was the best opportunity to earn money of all their crops. That came from the Department of Ag. Um, so it fluctuates, right? And in Montana, we've got big acres. We've got farmers that are interested in learning how to grow this crop, both the grain and the fiber. Uh, we've actually got the most organic acres under contract of anywhere in the country. And we're able to have a more robust supply chain. But with that said, we're also located in the middle of Montana. So, you know, in any agricultural business, you can either be close to your source or you can be close to your market. And maybe we can be a great opportunity for others that are close to a market to work with a group that's close to the source. I'll tell you. The idea about we're just going to go contract a bunch of farmers and grow a bunch of grain and bring it in and have it all work out is a lot easier to say on a podcast than when you get into the weeds of those contracts and sitting with the family and, and figuring it all out. And really, we're proud of that. You know, I led with we want to create opportunities for farmers and we measure our success with can we increase our acres? So if IND Hub can help you with grain or fiber supply, whether that's a raw material or even an intermediary good, you know, we're here to help the industry grow. And if you want to just learn from our small successes and, and larger failures along the way, and we can help the next group get off the ground a little quicker and a little more affordable, that's going to help the entire American supply chain. And really, I mean, they call it a supply chain because there's links, right? And maybe your company does two or three of those links, but if you're not connected to those guys that are the supply and you're not connected to those guys that are in the market, it doesn't work, you know, and CBD came out and everybody loved this term vertical integration, right? So they had this mentality of you should do everything. You should figure out genetics. You should grow the crop. You should process the crop and you should market the crop. Well, that's great at a farmer's market scale of a small extract, 
But as you scale this up to big agriculture, our farmers, they're not hemp farmers. They're Montana grain farmers that happen to grow a couple hundred acres of hemp. And they're not in the position to be processors or even marketers of the product, but they can grow a lot of it. And our role is to find these guys and have these relationships and build the infrastructure here in Montana that gives them a place to sell their product. And now we face out to the rest of the industry. So if you're thinking about getting into the hemp industry and you're not already farming hemp or processing hemp, there's a lot of opportunities for midstream and downstream businesses that can take these materials and make the products that we all know are possible out there. I'll say one of them, somebody in between Montana and Colorado, maybe Utah, needs to figure out a degumming plant. Because if we're decorticating fiber up here and they're decorticating fiber down in Colorado, well, there's a business opportunity for somebody to do that next stage of degumming and cottonizing and making a higher quality fiber of that. You know, it's not really in our wheelhouse right now and probably not for those guys in Colorado as well. And so these are, when we talk about sharing at the summit, these are some of the things that we can put out there and where are the holes in the supply chain? And maybe there's guys that are ready to take a fiber to market, right? And maybe there's guys that we're making the raw material, but what are those steps in the middle that are a new business opportunity for somebody else that wants to be in the hemp industry and may just fit a different link in that chain? There you go. Man, you're gonna need a nap after all that talking. That's terrific. <laughs> Definitely gonna need a drink of water. <laughs> That's all right. Hey, look, thank you so much, Greg. And we really appreciate you and, and you individually and the whole IND hemp team. Um, next week, we've got um, uh, another big boy uh, on the block uh, in, the, in our, in our uh, industry. Uh, Morris Beagle is going to be on with us and talk about the uh, Southern Hip Exchange in Raleigh, uh, North Carolina. I know y'all will all be out there and we'll all be enjoying each other's company there at that. And, and Morris, who has um, uh, one of the leading podcasts on, on hemp, Let's Talk Hemp, and <coughs> has... Um, uh, the founder of NOCO, along with some of his partners, um, Lizzie and others. So he'll be on with us next week. So make sure that you tune back in. And so um, uh, thank you for your time, man. Appreciate everything you do. Take care. Appreciate you, Al. And I wish uh, all your members and all your farmers down there the best. Hemp is a bumpy road. It's good to know that going in. You know, there's days where you bang your head against the wall and you get up the next day. And, you know, we're all extremely fortunate at this moment in time that we get to be part of bringing this back into uh, into society. So I love it. You guys the best as well. Take care. All right. Thank you. This podcast produced and distributed by MWB Studios.